Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Sherry, you've got a little beach vacation coming up, a little girls getaway. Yeah. Are you excited? Yeah. Yeah. I want. I would love it if you would share the story. You were sitting in a staff meeting at the church where you work, and you reminded all of the rest of the staff that you had a vacation coming up so they wouldn't be wondering where you were. Yes. To, what happened with that interaction? Well, I was reintroducing the thought because with COVID, I didn't know if it was going to happen. Oh, right. So I had kind of like, it had been on the back burner. Mm-hmm. And then, so I was, I have, uh, still have some Christmas candy in my office downstairs and I had already had like a peppermint kiss. I think I forgot to tell you that part. And I brought up, a, it was a miniature candy cane and I was sucking on a candy cane and they're like, oh, are you getting excited about your trip? And I said, yeah, I'm working on my beach bod because while you yeah, were sucking, while on, I was a sucking on a candy cane, you know, most people like get all try to get fit and they start, you know, really tightening up beforehand, but you know. But you're just living your best life. Yeah. I the thing I love about that story is you are the most comfortable person in your own skin that I've ever met. And I and yeah, you just made that face. I knew you were <laughs> gonna make a face that like not. that. What's that? You've told me that I'm not. Oh, when I was a drunk idiot, maybe. But in reality, you you are the most comfortable person in your own skin. And I'm I'm imagining that to you internally, you might not feel that way. But the outward, um, what you give off is just a tremendous amount of comfort in who you are and what you do. And it's really something I envy about you. And I've noticed something about you. We've been together for a long time. <laughs> and I'm doing a great job working on my beach of, pod with the Your brownies. pod is fantastic. But we've been married for, and we've been together for a couple and a half decades or so. And I have noticed that you don't seem to have any addictions. And I think there's a correlation between you not seeming to have any addictions and you being just comfortable with who you are and what you are and what you do and what you say. Occasionally, you've got a bit of a temper. Occasionally, you go, not with me, but with outsiders, you go a little further than like you wish you had. Like living off strangers when they tell me to slow down and driving in my neighborhood. That's among them, yeah. yeah. But you have occasionally uh, said things to people that you know, not just strangers, and then been like, ah, I wish I hadn't said that. But for but that's like periphery, minor, very rare. Once, maybe twice a year. For the most part, you're just super comfortable. And again, no addictions. I think there is a relationship there because I didn't realize how insecure I was, but I, I clearly was. I, I've always, and you've always said this, the drinking mat, you know, the early drinking mat, you've always said that I care way too much about what other people think. Yeah. Oh, that annoyed the hell out of yeah. me. Yeah. Like, from your first job, or even the job we worked at at the bar, you didn't want to disappoint anybody. You didn't want to let anybody down. If they people were like, pleaser. put on this costume, you were like, put on the costume and more. Like, you just, it was like overkill to over impress. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no question. What other people think has always you know and and i would even deny it right I would, oh i don't care what anybody thinks mm, yeah i really i really did sometimes you would deny it then oftentimes like 
when we would be having more of a serious conversation. Yeah. You, you would say, yeah, because I want to do well. I want, I want, because it might advance my career or I don't want to offend anybody. You had these justifications why you were right. a people pleaser. And I don't think there's like to a point, there's nothing wrong with it. You don't want to go around pissing everybody off and lighting up every bridge that you've crossed, you know? So there's, there is being kind and being a good person and being generous to your coworkers or your boss or helping out and pitching in. But but it turns out people pleaser cares what other people think. A number of addictions. Those things go hand in hand. Certainly the, the big one, the most damaging one and the one that we talk the most about is alcoholism. But there, you know, there are other things. I've had unhealthy relationships with food and and coffee. and workaholism and sex and decaf De- coffee. Decaf coffee. I am not addicted to decaf coffee. <laughs> you I, just drink a lot of it. I like it. It doesn't hurt me. I'm apparently pretty defensive about it too. <laughs> yeah, the other day, I'm just going to let our listeners know you made a full pot and then you you came around the corner to look at how much was left and go, "Have you had any of this?" And I went, <laughs> "No, I haven't had any of the world's cheapest decaffeinated pre-ground coffee." You know, and you were like, "Oh God, I drank all that already." You have uh, to bend pretty low to the bottom <laughs> shelf at Safeway to get the <laughs> the coffee that I like because that's where the cheap stuff is on the bottom <laughs> shelf. It's true. Mm-hmm. But so I've always cared what people think. You have never really very much. I mean, you don't want to offend, like, close friends and family. But sometimes I just can't help myself from saying the thing. Yeah. That's what it is. It's it's not that I don't care. I don't want to hurt people's feelings. Sometimes it just comes out of me, before, or the reaction or the eye roll, because I'm notoriously a great eye roller. Like, those things happen before I have time to pause and collect my thoughts. But also, if I feel like it's something that I feel strongly about my opinion, then I can't help not to let them know where I stand in this. Well, I think that's a great lead-in because today's topic, we're going to talk about the power of speaking your truth, which is a huge topic in the recovery community, both for the alcoholics and for the loved ones. And I think this little preamble is good because it it shows what different uh, angles we come at, we come at this from. But we're going to talk about how the power of speaking the truth has impacted our lives. As usual, I have, you know, kind of prepared thoughts and ideas and some questions for you, Sherry. And you have no idea what's coming at you for this podcast. So um, my thought, my my answers might be a little more thought out. Yours will be off the cuff, but that's the way we like it. So I'm excited to hear what you have to say. Um, so when we, when we got out of college and moved in together. We lived together for a couple of years before we were married. And we had what I would consider normal career paths. I had a degree in marketing, so I had a sales job for a big company. And you uh, went back to culinary school during those early years to uh, get a culinary degree. And in the meantime, you worked in a bank. Mm-hmm. So these are all, it's all normal entry level, kind of young 20s stuff that we were doing. When I was 30 and you were 31, we decided, we had been moved a few times by my company, so we had traveled around the Midwest a little bit, and we decided that we were going to start, the the first idea was we were going to open a bakery. 
and we were working with a franchise company, but you know, the initial plan was to open a bakery in the town that we lived in. And then that, that just didn't work out. The demographics weren't so good. And so then that plan transitioned into us buying a bakery, mm-hmm. but either way, any way you slice it, those details aren't important. What's important is we were going from a normal existence, corporate America, working your way up. You had gotten your culinary degree and you were working in the culinary industry or working in restaurants. So everything kind of looks like you would script it. And then all of a sudden we're going to throw all of that away and (laughs) hang out our own shingle basically and be small business owners and have no safety or security or salary. It's just going to be good luck and I hope you make it kind of a thing. And I will I I can remember the room in our house that I was in when I told my dad that we were going to do that. Now I'm 30 years old at this point. The With uh, a baby. Yeah. We we have we've started our own family. Yes. I'm 30 years old. I'm a full-grown adult. Uh my parents no longer hold you know, any say in what I do, but I was still absolutely terrified to share this idea of going from, you know, normal corporate America. I went and got my degree and I'm working in my degree field to taking this huge risky chance. I I don't know if I thought he was going to like come through the phone line and tell me I can't do that. Like, I don't like what, what was I nervous about? He couldn't have stopped me. And in, in the end, I do want to say this. I want to defend him strongly defend him. He was very supportive of the idea. Shocked me, completely shocked me because he's always been about, you know, very fiscally conservative as am I. Well, as am I theoretically. (laughs) I'm fiscally conservative, but... With other people's money. (laughs) But I am a risk taker. I'm a chance taker. But so I expected him to try to spend the next half hour talking me out of it. And instead he was supportive. But like I said, this was... 18 years ago and 19 years ago, I can remember the room in the house I was in and where I was standing in that room when I told him. So I was petrified. Mm-hmm. What about you? When you when you told your mom and your sister, what was what was your feeling at the time when we were doing this? And, you know, I, I had, this was my idea, right? Mm-hmm. Was there some arm twisting there or were you? Yes. Well, I think, I don't want to give off a whole bunch of details because it's not important, but yet another company you worked for was closing its doors. So we had to come up with something. And this was the second in the industry that you had worked for by that time that had closed that division or, you know. So we had to come up with something. And we were like, four hours away from my family on the opposite ends of the state. So, and, you know, I was newly pregnant with number two. We had a, you know, almost a, you know, a year and a half, you know, a year and a half year old. Right. Um, So, yeah, that was pretty damn scary when you started kicking around this idea. But you had given, like, little tidbits of being an entrepreneur all through your 20s. Like, we used to laugh that you had, like... A midlife crisis, twenty, you know, twenty five years too early. Right. Oftentimes. Yes. Um, so I knew that you were kind of unhappy, or you were uninspired, maybe working for someone else. Then when we agreed upon which 
we were going to buy a franchise, so we felt like we had a little bit of safety net with some notoriety and support. name recognition and support. And But, yeah, I remember telling my family and my sister, she was just, like, devastated. And because my mom, we of course, moving. because we would have to move. Right, and not be because four it hours didn't, away anymore. Yeah, um, not be four hours away. So that was, and that was really hard. That was really hard. And they so, just couldn't understand why we would choose this and why you just couldn't go get another job. So that's a very interesting perspective. For you and your family, it was all about proximity. And for, for me, it was all about risk. Like I was just, like my fear was about taking a chance. And, and frankly, I was young and naive and we Cocky. had had cocky yeah we had had career-wise we had had success anything you know we we actually worked alongside somebody later during the bakery years who had that everything you touch turned to gold kind of thing we hadn't had quite that but we hadn't had any backsliding like you know every every year I got a raise and every yeah. couple of years I got a promotion like so in the was, corporate world you seemed, did really well right so I had more confidence than probably was warranted. Yes, that's why I said the word cocky. Because I remember we went away from our, right. you know, we went away from the meetings and the phone calls. And I remember because proximity-wise, like my sister and brother-in-law came up several times to watch our daughter while we did stuff and had, you know, phone calls with the with the corporation and that we were buying this franchise. So, so did you, you kept you kept like. I'm sorry, but you just kept like making it sound like, oh, it's no big deal. That's what It'd I thought. It'd be so easy. Oh, yeah. Look at these knuckleheads. If they can do it, we can just blow it out of the water. Yeah. So I was riding high, like putting well, the, all of my. The guy faith that we ultimately bought the bakery from that we ultimately owned for 15 years, when we met with him, one of the first times he, he was really into the art and the craft of making bread. And he, one of the things he said to us that made me so confident and cocky was he, he was talking about how beautiful it is, the art of making the bread and how frustrated he would get when customers would come in because they would interrupt his bread making. And I thought, oh my God, this guy hates his customers. <laughs> we, you know, we will love our customers and be wildly more successful. So I had, but regardless of where, from where it emanated, I had a ton of cockiness and overconfidence. So, was did you anticipate when you were telling your mom and your sister that their reaction was going to be oh my god you guys are moving yeah. a thousand miles away yeah yeah so was there relief when you had the conversation did to, to like get it off your chest or was it just like i thought that was going to be bad turns out it was bad i feel like crap well it still tears me up when i think about it because um you know, we thought that that job would land us there for a while, you know. Um, and I would say the winters sucked there, but the winters in my, you know, my experience of growing up and where you live so far, winters sucked everywhere, so it didn't really matter. So, yeah, it was. And I felt a tremendous amount of guilt. And because we had lived away from them, you know, for a while. And I had... At the you know, the most had lived, you know, 40 minutes away. And until your, we, you in, and I moved. In your family, other than your one aunt that moved to Montana, nobody left. Yeah, I mean, like Southern an hour, Indiana. hour and a half away. That was about right. as far as it goes. Nobody went too far to come for 
Sunday dinner if you were having a family get together. Or yeah, or holidays. Other than every in minor holiday, yeah. So, not only was there pressure because we had a young family, and nobody wants to see their daughter and grandchildren move away, but there was pressure because you were the first one to do it, and guilt because you were the first one to do it. Well, and you know because we had I had the guilt because we moved away. Um, after you graduated and then we moved, you know, around sometimes closer, sometimes further back, further away. And so but at a, least, but a four hour drive four in the hour, north part of the state was and we by were far around the friends, you know, we yeah. were around friends and familiarity. So, that, okay. So that's, so that's it was really hard. It was really hard for me. Also, was it hard to have that conversation? It was hard to have that conversation and it was hard to know. That I would be out here in Denver, away from all my family and friends, with a newborn and a toddler. And we would be owning our own business and all that uncertainty. And there were lots of questions that correlated around that with my family. Like, your parents didn't really ask those kind of questions. Because your sister had lived away away. From her family when she had her kids. Well, we moved and three your times when moved. I was growing up. Yeah, and your parents moved, so they didn't understand that. And, you know, my sister stayed in the same town, and so when her kids, her sons were born, we were there all the time to help out. So, even though we were four to four and a half hours away, you know, well, from them, it still is a lot better than a day and a half trip. It's an interesting... Um, you know, reaction, difference in the reactions, because for me to get our plans off my chest and to share was a huge amount of relief. Um, you know, fits in with this topic of the power of speaking your truth. For you, there was, sounds like there was relief in sharing with them the truth, but it was, it was just kind of a sad thing all the way around. You expected to get negative feedback. And I'm not saying that like to be mean to your family, they were going to miss you, which is good. It's a good sign when your family's going to miss you. Well, and I think and, there's... A, and they did. And it's, I think there's a... I'm sorry. There's a big difference, I think, between your family and my family. My family is in the middle of everybody's business. Like, we act like that's our job sometimes is to know what's going on in other people's lives. So there was never a question that I wasn't asked that nobody want, you know, nobody was afraid to ask me a question yeah. or give their opinion. Where I think with your family, there was a lot of that. Because there was also the distance, too. When I came out about my alcoholism, a year into my sobriety, at that time, before I came out about it, and when I say came out, I mean I told everybody that I knew. Massive email blast for anyone who hasn't heard the story. But when I did that, before I did that, the only people that really knew were my parents, my sister... Your mom, your sister. We had some friends that we went to the Indy 500 with that, you know, weren't surprised when I came out because they got to see me at my partying best. But that's about it as far as people who had an inkling. So when I came out about my alcoholism, it was shocking to a lot of people. And like I said, I had been sober for a year when I did that. But to that point, it had been situations where if I went somewhere where, and, and, you know, I didn't often go where anywhere where socially drinking 
was happening. And this is a big part of what I share with people who are trying to get sober. That first year, it's really, really important to be a recluse, to stay out of tempting situations, to stay out of situations where people around you are going to be getting drunk and you're either you're going to have one of many reactions. You're either going to be jealous of that person or you're going to be disgusted by that person. It doesn't matter. It's not a place for you to be in that first year of sobriety. And I could go on and on about how important that is. I have 10 years of failed attempts at sobriety where I relapsed. And a lot of the reasons I relapsed was because of putting myself in social situations. I wouldn't necessarily relapse in the moment and drink right then and there. But I would drink a few days later because I would feel so bad about myself having been in an alcohol-centric situation. But that that's, for the most part, a topic for another day. The point is, very, very, very few people knew that I was had that I had a problem with alcohol, and very, very few people knew that I was sober because I had avoided social situations like the plague that first year. And in the few times when I was in social situations, I would make an excuse like, oh, I'm on antibiotics, I can't drink, or I've got to go pick up a cousin at the airport, or, you know, any of a number of of little white lies that I would tell as to the reason why I wasn't drinking. So when I sent this email blast, I remember that it was a Wednesday that I sent it. One of the things that we do for a living, that I do for a living, is I coach high school soccer. And the Tuesday night before sending that out, I remember coming off the soccer field with the other coaches that we had had a training session that evening. And I remember, as I said goodbye to them, I looked at them. I'm like, oh, you are never going to look at me the same way again. I didn't say that, but that was my thought. I can remember the hillside we were walking up toward the parking lot when I had that thought. And so again, this is another situation where the truth was going to set me free or the truth was going to set me on fire. I wasn't sure which. But the truth was coming out, and I have this distinct memory under so much stress and pressure of where I was the, the last time I interacted with anybody before the email went out, and my, you know my world basically turned upside down. So, and the result of that email blast was almost a hundred percent wonderful. I got a lot of positive feedback. There were certainly some people that were just quiet and I didn't get any feedback from, but I got no negative feedback. So I either heard, way to go, Matt, congratulations, didn't know you had a problem, but we're cheering you on, or I heard nothing, and, and but no, you know, oh, come on, it's not that bad, you're blowing it out of proportion. Yeah, that's what I was, I was wondering if there would be any people that, you know, were the fringe people, because now... Yeah. This was an email blast to everybody who was in your email contacts. So these were people that you had formerly worked with, like maybe in, you know, when you first got out of college, yeah, they had their emails. So some of them were... Some of them didn't hadn't... know who they were getting the email. <laughs> yeah, they're who like, is this, who guy? Is this guy? Okay, whatever. But I thought for sure there's going to be some people that would miss their drinking buddy, that would miss the person who was maybe drunker than they were. They could compare themselves against at a party. Look, I'm not as bad as Matt. Look at me. I'm not as drinking as much as Matt. I thought for sure there'd be some of those, at least one. I thought I'd get fired. That was one I was pretty mm-hmm. confident in, actually. From the coaching I had job. talked to my sister, who is a principal in in a different state, long, far away. But I said, Do, am I at risk here? And she thought, well, maybe you are. So I was 
you know, the high school soccer coaching from a financial standpoint is not all that impactful. I do get paid, but it's very similar to volunteering. <laughs> but so I wasn't worried about the, the revenue loss, but I love it, love it, love it, love it. And I was really worried about losing something that I love. And so I was terrified. And the result being, like I said, mostly positive, some silence, but mostly positive. Definitely didn't lose my job. You know, nothing could be further from the truth. A year later, my athletic director didn't even remember. And I think because you didn't have incidences where people that were on your email contact list, because these were kids that you had even, like, coached back in the rec center days when you were just a volunteer. No one said, oh, I'm putting two and two together, and Matt was maybe drunk that time on the... You know, so I think. Well, that, I never drank and then but, coached. But so, exactly, no, so you never right. did do any of that. So I think that that certainly helped. There was no like sort of investigation, right? But the the that feeling of relief as that day unfolded, when the email went out and I started to get the responses, what is indescribable. And not only was it a relief to not get negative, you know, repercussions. But it was a relief because of the positive that would come out of it. The conversations that I could have much more freely. Once I had told everyone, then I didn't hesitate to talk more about it to other new people that I was encountering. Or if somebody wanted details. And, you know, a good number of people came to me and said, gosh, that was super brave. I can't believe that you had this problem. I can't believe that you're sober. I'm worried about my drinking. Can I talk to you about that? So the... You know, the full spectrum from people that had that didn't have a drinking problem at all that just said, Atta boy, way to go, proud of you, glad to be your friend, whatever, stuff, you know, like that to people that wanted to dive in deeper. And one of the really interesting aspects was the number of people that had a different problem. Like, you know, hey, I, I've battled cancer and I want to talk to you about that. And I'd be like, well, what does that have to do with alcoholism? It's just somebody that's struggling through something that's really difficult and they are looking for someone to talk to about it. And so that was fascinating to me. I've been using the word fascinating around here a lot, so I expected a I was I rolling as I was looking down so you couldn't see it. But that it really was fascinating to me the number of uh deepened relationships and interactions that came out of that. So it was it was all upside. It was relief at the beginning and then it was closer relationships, so much good. So you know, coming out and being honest and sharing my truth about something was just a wonderful feeling. What what was it like? What was it like for you, Sherry? I mean, I know, I know. One thing was that after I came out, somebody approached you. It's something you've talked about before, but can you share that? Well, I did have a couple of different people approach me. Okay, someone who you had coached their child, um, and. I had known her through um, a gym that we both went to, and we hung out a bit, and we had just kind of separated. But she was a she's a um, social worker, so she just she was one of the first people that reached out to me to say, and I think she was one of the very few that only wanted to know how the kids and I were doing. Yeah, they were, she was very supportive of you, and felt like she said, "I felt like you know from like a." professional standpoint like him coming out like this there's no turning back 
and everybody's watching him, sort of, and he maybe feels like everybody's watching him, so I have really positive about his success, and she knew your personality. And staying sober. And staying sober, and she knew your personality type, so she just wanted to know more of, like, the kind of the psychological impact and were we getting help, and I was like, no, I think that once, you know, sobriety is fully activated and he's better, then things are going to be better. I remember kind of talking about that, but she... Kind of thought, well, there was something deeper. That's it. And but she, she didn't pursue because, you know, we had fallen out of sync with one another. But in the end, she was right. But she was right. That's so super interesting. Yeah. And I think, you know, because she, she worked with child welfare services. So, and then I had another person come to approach me that I had been friends with, but because our kids were, you know, our um, sons were the same age. And she said, you know, I've been living a very parallel life, like... Her husband did not put off like he was an alcoholic. I didn't really know him. He was always very quiet. But she said, yeah, we've been battling this for years. And I was floored. Just floored. And then I got angry. I got really angry at him. For some reason, it was okay that you had been an alcoholic. But for her to have an alcoholic husband, no, that was not okay. Hmm. Well, you're always protective of people you care about. Yeah. Very protective of people you care about. So. So that's probably. So that was nice to have her to kind of walk this journey with. And then short, you know, it wasn't too long after that he started working on his sobriety. So we've kind of, I've been, we've been a few steps ahead of them in terms of longevity. But. I know one of the things that you've shared is that just like your friend who was the social worker said, oh, now he's out. There's no turning back. That was one of your initial reactions when I sent the, the email like, oh, mm-hmm. well, he's had some, you know, 10 years of extended <laughs> periods of sobriety and then he decides he's going to drink again. Be pretty hard for him to do that. So I know you felt some relief from that, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember it was a, maybe it was the Christmas before um, your final attempt at sobriety and where it stuck was. Like, you weren't drinking, and your parents were around, and then you were drinking the next time we saw them. And you had said, I'm going to quit drinking to them at the holidays, and you didn't drink, and then you were drinking again. And they didn't really say anything. Oh, I thought you weren't drinking. Well, I changed my mind. And then that was it. Yeah. No, like... Were you, you know, hoping that they'd be like, what do you mean you changed your mind? You can't drink. Yeah, like, I was hoping they'd say, you can't drink. You've had years of this, and, you know tearful calls in the middle of the night with your wife asking for help and we've come and tried to talk some sense into you and you just you know I was hoping there'd be more of a I don't know support in in you know pushing you to sobriety but there wasn't and my mom you know she wouldn't say anything necessarily to you out loud um so I don't think we really ever shared because I know that she probably would have said well, you drink way too much, and you'd be better off if you didn't. Um, mm. I don't think she would have a problem saying that, but she could. Nobody could stop you from not drinking if you wanted. But so the. But bo- then I felt like if if all these people know, yeah, you know, and you had shared with some of your soccer guys, yeah, you know, so you hadn't the been people drinking. I played with. You played with, yeah. yeah, in your adult league. They knew that you were not drinking, but then when you put it in the email to all these. I don't know how many... They knew I wasn't drinking, but they didn't... Like, there wasn't a lot of lie. Yeah. I would skirt around that. I would say... I couldn't tell them I was on antibiotics because it had been a whole year. 
Because right. after every game, we would go to the bar. So, I mean, they would go to the bar. I occasionally joined them, but I... But even even just by not going with them to the bar, that said a lot because when I drank, I was never going to miss going to the bar after the game. Right. So even avoiding the social setting spoke volumes. But yeah, they didn't know any details, and they were among so those were my drinking buddies. They were among the most supportive once I sent this coming yeah. out blast mm-hmm. and shared what was going on. So that was a nice nice feeling. But the 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 point of all of this is for you and for me in this occasion, the coming out, the being honest and telling the truth was a huge amount of relief, like weight lifted off our shoulders kind of relief. Certainly big time for me, but, but there was some relief in that for you because it solidified things as well. Yeah. I mean, I can't even imagine like sending out that kind of information to everybody that you knew. So the next time when I remember specifically where I was standing and, you know, the Memory is etched into my memory like that. The memory is etched into my memory. (laughs) Good use of English. Was when I started writing about my addiction and my recovery. And while we still owned the bakery, I had started the blog. And I had hired a writing coach who was immensely helpful. And she helped me kind of chart a path for where we were going to go with this. And, but the, the bakery was closing. We lost our lease and we were unsuccessful in finding a new location. And so it, and we were unsuccessful in selling the assets, which was another thing that we tried to do and help somebody else move the bakery. Anyway, it was closing and we had started telling customers about that. And so from the time we started telling customers the bakery was closing, there were probably 60 days before we actually closed, probably a good solid two months. And boy, probably for those two months, probably between, I don't know, 20 and 50 times a day, we would have customers asking us, so what are you going to do next? So what are you going to do next? So what are you going to do next? And I would skirt around, oh, I don't know, we're still thinking, we'll, we'll figure it out. We haven't decided yet. I spent a lot of time, probably a month and a half of just putting people off when they asked that question. And then finally, I was standing behind the counter and it was the this couple. They were young. They were in their 20s, mid-late mid 20s. And I didn't know them very well. Kind of sort of recognized them. So they were semi-regular customers, but it's not like they were... I mean, some of our customers, we knew their names. We knew their kids' names. We interacted with them outside of the bakery or at least ran into them from time to time. This wasn't that. They were semi-randos. And they said, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to write. And they looked at me and they said, well, what are you going to write about? I said, I'm going to write about addiction and recovery. I'm a recovering alcoholic. And all of that just spilled out of me. And they had, you know, looks of shock on their face. Because they are not yet addicted to anything at this point, which I'm sure. Except their phones. I'm sure they were addicted (laughs) to their phones. But, but. They, they were shocked, and then I remember the guy said, well, good for you, man. That sounds great. And the wave of relief that rushed over me, having spoken the truth. I mean, that was the plan. Mm-hmm. We just hadn't really... We didn't know if it was going to work. You know, you thought... <coughs> we thought buying a bakery at age 30 was a risk. This was an even bigger risk. Now, the kids were grown and looking at college, college. And, <laughs> yeah. and eating us out of house and home, and... 
you know, it turns out teenagers are way more expensive than babies. So it was an even bigger risk. And again, the plan was in the rough draft stage at best as far as how this was going to work out. But speaking it into reality just was an incredible surge of relief over me. And then I, and then I just started any customer that asked, I would tell them because that first reaction that I got was positive. And that's an important part about this. When the vulnerability is rewarded, then you feel good about doing it again. We know there, there are, you know, we don't want to sugarcoat this. We don't want to make this all sound better than it is. There are cases where you're honest with somebody and you get a terrible negative reaction and you don't want to be honest anymore. Right. I get that. But in this case, it was very positive and it just opened the floodgates of me talking to the point where I bet I bet our customers were glad when the day came that the bakery finally closed so they'd stop having to hear me talk about the plans to write about addiction and recovery. Yeah. So what was what were those end days like for you at the bakery before we were out of there when people started to know the plan? Were because you, you were fairly skeptical of the plan too. Very at that skeptical. Point. So Very were you like skeptical. my crazy husband's gonna write and yeah, I, I don't was know like, how we're gonna what do you make being a postal service worker like. I was like looking at career paths for you that will allow you to write, but not have too much to think about. I would love to be a postal carrier. <laughs> I, I was like, I'm bus so driver. What is, a, what is a bus driver? Like a CDL license, like cross country, because you're you like driving too. So I was like literally thinking those things. What can he do, but would not like suck so much of his time and he could just hang up his hat at the end of the day and not let it like carry over into the evening to work. So then he could do writing because I was like, there's not a chance in hell that he's going to be able to write and have us, you know, work because eat food, have a house because I work at a church and that's not a, that that's almost like volunteering as well too. So I have two really high paid volunteer gigs. Exactly. I think that's awesome that you were preparing the career fallback. Well, backup even for plan. me, I was like, I didn't have a backup plan. And for I me, was all in. I remember I was that I started working as a substitute for the preschool that is run through our church as a substitute teacher. I remember trying to think, what can I do that's still going to allow me like the hours to like get the kids to and from school and pick up and do activities. So yeah, I had all those thoughts running through my head. Was like, gosh, we're just going to have to piecemeal all this together. Like, what is the, or, or like, what does a barista make? Like, Matt can do morning and I'll go in and be a barista or... So was it, was there any relief involved at all to the fact that I was actually talking about it? Or just all terror? All terror for all me. Terror. All terror all the time. Do you have, I'm putting you on the spot here, but do you have a situation where you had held something in and then something about you, not about me? And you had, you finally kind of opened up? About it, and it felt relieving. I don't think that I have like a big, big moment, really. Yeah, back to the earlier noti- notification about no addiction for you. <laughs> but I think that I do find relief now when I voice my own real opinions or my own real desires, or I say something to you, and I don't think they're big relief things. Um, and I don't get retaliated on or it's not thrown up against me like in our drinking days but I I don't I've always kind of been this like I've never had big ideas 
I've but never we'll had take, like big dreams. Take the of, career, take the career piece out of it. You've had, I can think of some instances where you've had conflict that was brewing with either neighbors or coworkers, where you just didn't think, that, you know, the path that they were going down was right for the organization or was right for you and you were kind of being dragged along and then you finally expressed that um, and, you know, got it off your chest and felt relieved by that. I mean, there was one very recently at at church work for you where you, well, you you know, you you didn't take a criticism. You didn't let it stand. You you fought back and you were really worried that you had offended a person, but you felt good about speaking yeah. the truth. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I did, like I said, I don't feel like there's been these big, great, big moments. But because I don't feel like I hold back a lot, I feel like that's, I held I back. Think that's a good point. That's, I feel like I held back a lot with you because I didn't know where it was going to land when you were drinking or when it was going to get you know brought back into the spotlight. Just as a thrown up in your face. Yeah, just as a, something that you could throw in my face. But so I feel like I just. Never really, I, I kind of let you know who I am. That's a, that's an excellent point. It goes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning with the candy cane and the beach bod. You know, when you don't have things that are pent up that you're hiding, with the exception of hiding from me, your alcoholic husband, when you never knew how I was going to react, when you don't have that, then there's not a lot of relief available when you speak your truth because you're kind of always speaking your truth. I think the only, the, the one thing I can think of that, um, was a big thing for me, and I feel like you have a different version of the the situation. But we have four children now. At one point in our early career days, I said I don't think I want any children if I'm going to do culinary arts because they're crazy hours. Right. And you traveled for your business, and even if you did get promoted, you would still sometimes have to travel with your, you know, the people you supervised in those sales positions. So I had kind of thought, I mean, I always liked kids. I loved like taking care of my nephews. I thought early on I would do some sort of child development um, career or teacher or something like that. Um, But I thought, gosh, with this path, no. And I mean, let's just Let's remind our audience that at one point we were thinking of race car driver as a career for Matt. Let's so, not talk a lot about that. That was short-lived. So, yes, it was short-lived, but it wasn't not pursued. And then, like... <laughs> it wasn't not pursued, so it was pursued. It was pursued. No, two negatives. Got so, it. Got it. Thank you. Um, so, just with the culinary arts and that sort of stuff, and, and I wouldn't say it was because I didn't want to bring children into this terrible world, but I thought, if I can't do it the way I kind of want, then I don't really want to do it because I can be a part of any kid's lives. And so I feel like when I finally, like I had this aha moment, like I really do want kids. And I told you, I don't think you had a big, like, you know, a big, like, oh, yeah, you know, I think you were kind of like, oh, okay. Because in your mind, you probably thought you could whittle me down to, having a kid later on in life probably thought you could talk me into it perhaps i definitely thought we were having kids i can't ever remember thinking we weren't so the fact that so you're rolling your eyes right now but yeah the fact that you you and my memory is just not as good as yours too 
But, I remember. But you're probably having... right. You're probably right. I thought. Well, I'll just. I'll work her down and it'll happen. Exactly. But I remember, we were, I remember, this is my aha moment. I remember sitting at a bar with your mom and your sister and your mom's good friend who sometimes had a friend that lived in the town that we were living in when we lived in Indiana. And so we would sometimes see her and she and I got along really well, even though she was your mom's age. Um, I remember we were at your friend Brad's wedding and it was Thanksgiving um, time, and I think maybe your sister was pregnant. Okay. And I said, yeah, I think I do want to have kids. And your mom's friend was, like, shocked because I remember having conversations, um, like, no, I did not want to have kids. Okay. And your mom and your sister, I think, were like, oh, we knew she'd come around, that sort of thing, but I remember, like telling people and to say it out loud I feel like that was to them because it wasn't to you felt like that was kind of like oh wow now I have to have a baby because you had spoken because I had said it out loud but I said I you know I didn't say it like committed wise I'm not that committed like I'm gonna write I think I maybe want to have kids or at least one yeah sorry to drag the podcast no you one thing I want to hit on, though, so we've talked about how speaking our truth into reality is relieving, it's important. Let's talk about why it's important. One of the things that we talk a lot about in our Echoes of Recovery group is, well, we, well, we use the title of a book quite often. The title is The Body Keeps the Score. And it's a great book. It's a number one New York Times bestseller. Um, by Bessel van der Kolk. And in all honesty, I've never read it, but I, I feel like I know a lot about it because I've heard so many people talk about it. And I, even without having read it, I would endorse it. Have you actually read it? I've No, I've read little synopsis, little pieces. But little... you're a fan as well. Oh, uh, yeah. Of the theory. Oh, uh, yeah. Hmm. You more so than I. Well, so the, the theory, it's right there in the title, The Body Keeps the Score is that the trauma of living with traumatic things, trauma and traumatic in the same sentence, I'm good today. The trauma of living through stressful and chaotic and dangerous things puts all kinds of, you know, uh, does damage to our physical health. So we, we think of it as just mental health, but it actually does a lot of damage to physical health. And certainly that topic comes up a lot when your main topic is alcoholism. So living with alcoholism in your house, you know, one of the things that happens is you're always in fight or flight mode. We talk about walking on eggshells. We talk about hypervigilance, always being ready to react to whatever reaction you get. You know, maybe the alcoholic in your life is in a good mood one minute and angry the next and yelling the next and sulking the next and you just never know. So you're always on pins and needles ready to take the appropriate action depending on the atmosphere in the house. That is not a healthy way to live. Our fight or flight situation in our nervous system is there to be used sparingly, occasionally, if we're under bear attack. It's not supposed to be how you spend all of your waking hours. And it does serious damage to the to the physical aspect of our body. 
So, which makes me wonder, what, so why are you a little skeptical? I, I'm not saying I'm skeptical. I'm just saying because I haven't read the whole thing. Okay. So, I, I, in theory, yes. Because I've, I've seen my sister witness this. I think that yeah, her health issues are related to the extreme stress because of her alcoholic um, relationships that she's had um, in her previous marriages. So, I, I do get that and I understand stress. I just can't say that I'm... Because I haven't read the entirety of it. Yeah, okay. But I understand the theory. I understand about your amygdala. Because I, I, I've read other books. So... We, we have... That's why I don't want to promote something that I haven't fully read. Yeah. The book, it's, the book is what you don't want to promote, but the theory... But the theory, yeah. You, that you want Yeah, I get that. Yeah. We had just, just earlier this week on one of our Echoes of Recovery video calls, one of our participants is a nurse and she said, yes, I have seen this over and over again. I've experienced it to mm-hmm. a certain degree, but as a medical professional, I'm telling you that the the impact on the body is massive as it relates to, you know, an un, abnormal nervous system, nervous system situation. So that makes me think, like, you got to imagine what kind of ER doctors and nurses and paramedics and first responders, like, having to always be in that mode of ready. military. Yeah, military, like, those sort of things. But then at least they have, and sometimes, and they get breaks, so I hope that they spend their break away from their job or their, you know, their leaves. As this ties into this topic about the truth setting us free and the speaking our truth into reality being so important. So you've got the hypervigilance of living with active alcoholism, but you've also got the stuff that you're keeping bottled up. Now this, Sherry, you you don't have any addiction problems, but this is one that you're good at. Taking things down. that are worrying you or or that have been bad experiences and rather than dealing with them, just pushing them down. Push it down, push it down, push it down. Snow skiing. <laughs> But how angry you would get when we would snow ski? Yeah. Yeah. And I gotta say, like, I know where it all stems from. Okay. Like, my fear of heights. Oh. And also, I watched this movie when I was too young, probably, like, called The Other Side of the Mountain or something. And this, like, Olympic snow skier, like, falls on the other side of the mountain is paralyzed. And I remember, like, the whole recovery process. And she's like, you know, oh, it's just terrible. I mean, and it's a love story in the end, whatever. It's... So, Fine, but I remember so being have, like so afraid that I was going to like do something so dangerous as a 35-year-old. Well, you never got over two miles an hour, so it wasn't all that dangerous. Yeah, exactly. But I, it was an unfounded fear, right, and I pushed it right. down. And so then instead of like, you know, working through it, I just got mad and sulky and scared and angry, and then that made it even worse. So that's an excellent example of something that you pushed down. Another example that probably people that are listening to this podcast can relate to is when you are in that situation where you're married to someone that you can't speak freely with and and where you have to pick and choose what words to use so carefully and decide whether or not you're going to bring a topic up and wait for the perfect moment. There's a lot of mm-hmm. pushing your emotions and your feelings down. Or just like when you're making dinner and they come around and they're like drunk and... They want to like be playful, and you're like, I have a big knife in my hand, and I'm cutting vegetables. Like, and I'm not attracted to you anyway, so stop <laughs> grabbing grabbing my butt. Yeah. So you like it's those it's from that small of interaction to pushing it down to like you just acted like a complete asshole to the waiter. 
and pushing that down, you know. So we went from our kitchen to a restaurant right there. Well, no, I'm just saying it's all those things, right. like, anywhere in between. Like, you just push everything down because you don't know what's going to... You push everything. Yeah. Yeah. As, well, as the loved one of an alcoholic. Yeah. You push a lot of things down. And also, it's a very Midwestern thing to do. Even though my family does like to talk about things. They like it to talk about always, each other. Yeah, they don't like but we to talk did about not, their own stuff. Yeah, but then, because you didn't know how much you wanted to bring up. Because you didn't know how things were going to be um, received. Mm-hmm. So you've got a lot of personal experience with the pushing down. Yeah. And now, I, I didn't check, you know, I'm violating HIPAA laws here, I know, but you've got some serious tension in your back and your neck. Like to the point where when you get a massage, the therapist is like, whoa, am I exaggerating or is that accurate? No, you're not exaggerating, but you want to put it all to something that also, there's another reason for it. It's not just all body keeps the score. Picking up and carrying babies? Yeah, because I'm, yeah. I'm doing things wrong. You know, I was using wrong sets of muscles to do some stuff. But also, I do remember times when I could not get my shoulders away from my ears. Like, I was so tense. And I could, like, feel it. And now, like, when I compare to what I feel now, uh-huh. and because of it being aging and overuse and inflammation and stuff like that that happens as you age, like little bit of arthritis and some bones up around my neck. I know that that's probably based on doing things wrong, lifting and the stress. So I, that's why I'm saying I do understand that it is that, but I know, you know, the difference between then and now is a world of difference. Because you're not keeping things bottled up. Because I'm not keeping things bottled up and things are better. And I'm, releasing some things and we don't have that tension in the house where I walk around. So all of the things that fit into the category of the body keeps the score, the walking on eggshells, the never knowing what, how your husband's going to be acting or reacting, Mm -hmm. the fear of bringing certain topics up because you don't know um, if you're going to start a, you know, a war. Right. Based on just talking about something uh, pushing your true emotions down. All of that is gone. Right. I don't even clench my teeth anymore. That's like when you're sleeping, you're supposed to be relaxing. I would be so balled up and clench my teeth that I did that for years or like, you know, the angry sleeping. So that's not restorative. So it's way better, but you still have lingering effects. And, And I guess that's what I'm, the point I'm trying to make the impact of this stuff this hypervigilance, the impact that it has on the body is long lasting. And I know that you say there are other contributing factors and I'm not disagreeing with you. There are other contributing factors, but this is one of the contributing factors. It's one of the major contributing factors because, you know, picking up babies in, in a preschool setting, it's not, you know, in and of itself going to cause at age 50, the kind of pain that you're in. So, it's all part of it. But it had been a lifelong thing. It had probably been before you when I did gymnastics younger and when I would exercise at the gym. These things, I like trained my my neck muscles inappropriately. This is kind of hilarious to me. Well, it is. It is in a way, but I also know that just my job in the last three years hasn't contributed to all of this. You're right. No, it hasn't. Yeah. But there's been a lifelong part, piece of it 
that when I was walking through with the physical therapist, I'm like, okay, I've been doing that wrong. I didn't know how to do this. I didn't know, like, some of the things. And, and I'm like, and I've trained my body. And in your defense, I've always been the kind of person that wants to find the one God, cause, yes. the one cause for whatever it's is ailing in It's not fucking processed food. It's got to be body <laughs> keeps the score shit. Like, this is why I maybe we're melting down right here. Oh, you're right. You always have to find one thing to get a hung up about. Yeah. <laughs> and drive it home. But it, yes. And I think that because I maybe, maybe because in other areas of my life, I didn't keep a lot of things held in, um, that maybe that was why it's not so bad. Whereas like I've seen cases of our, of our friends from Echoes or my sister, like their health is, is really, really bad now because of. Things that had happened in the past. Because things they pushed down. Yes, the stress. The the extreme stress. And, yeah. You know, and the the only area where this really gets publicized is work stress. You you can, if you Google and search for articles about how work stress takes 10 years off your life, you'll find lots of reading material. Mm -hmm. But if you look for the similar on family stress, alcoholism... Uh, living with an alcoholic is my husband killing me is my husband killing me Ooh, there's a topic for an article right there or a title for an article i love yeah. it thanks for that but yeah so the body keeps the score stuff is serious and it's it's got to be factored in and the relief that comes from not keeping things bottled up it's more than just this emotional relief it's physical health it can have a huge impact on our physical health to stop bottling things up, to stop being hypervigilant, to stop always worrying about what the reaction you're going to get might be. And so finding a way to to get to a place where you have freedom to be yourself and speak your truth and be honest is really important, whether that's through sobriety, long-term sobriety and a lot of recovery work, or whether that's finding other outlets to have that communication. It's really important. We might disagree a little bit about your neck pain, but we'll agree on that, right? Yes. The last thing that we need to talk about, Sherry, is who owns the story in an alcoholic relationship? This is really important and really confusing and a lot, a lot of gray area. What we're talking about here is we talk about how much relief is involved from being honest and speaking your truth. But when you are the spouse of an alcoholic, your story is not yours alone. Your story is shared with that alcoholic. In other words, you can't come out and be open and be honest and speak your truth without revealing something very serious and potentially damaging to the person that you're in relationship with. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we talked about my coming out. I mean... It's all about me, 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 my, I announced this, I did that. But what about you? I mean, you were never in a position, honestly, I don't think it's your personality to come out and want to share stuff like that with the world anyway. But even if it was, you were never at liberty to do that without dragging me through the mud, right? Right. How did that feel? Well, I, I will say there was a couple people besides family that I 
seriously talked about your alcohol. And ironically, one of them is Kelly Miller, the um, addiction nutritionist that's been on the podcast before. Episode four of the Untoxicated Podcast. One of the she best She and episodes. I met at preschool and somehow I just got this vibe and she got this vibe and we became fast friends uh-huh. and we had a lot of similarities and I remember sharing with her that I was very concerned because this was towards the end of your drinking career. This is towards the end of the time when you were like, knew you had a problem and it was just all a matter of not knowing how to deal with it. And I remember expressing with her how uh, worried I was about your drinking. Mm. So I felt like I could talk to her about it. She was the only person I really like mentioned that to. Um, on like So when it was a bad weekend or something, I felt like I had a place to go. Yeah. With her. And, you know, she and I had a lot of um, similar Christian values. And so I felt like I could always have her praying for me and, and us as a family. And then I just thought it was fascinating the way she was using nutrition to combat addiction. Oh, so yeah. that was another thing that I was like, ooh, I feel like there's going to be a bigger connection here in the future. Um, so... She was one that I did. But other than that, besides I had given up talking to our parents and family because I didn't want to worry them more as they were aging. Yeah. And, you know. It's tough. Did you feel trapped? Did you feel like you were in a box? Like you couldn't couldn't share because it would be detrimental to me and you didn't own the story on your own? And I think by that, you know, we were... Like, I was thinking, gosh, because you had been, you were getting hired um, and being paid at the schools to coach. So I didn't want to, like, jeopardize that by rumors getting around. And then there would be judging and be like, oh, just fire this guy because we don't know what to expect. You know, so I certainly wanted to keep your reputation, reputation, and I didn't, I didn't want to drag you down in the mud. I didn't want, you know, I didn't want to say anything to the wrong person, you know. And have it, you know, be a rumor. And Alcoholism is often described as a family disease, and I think this is a good example. It, it, it sounds less like you felt necessarily trapped, but you felt like you were in it with me. Yeah, I mean, like, like I know also this I knew... thing, and we're depending on each other, so I can't reveal this thing because it could potentially hurt us as a family, right. not just I, hurt Matt. Also, I not that I really cared about what people thought, and... Um, because I grew up with alcohol in my life, and it was pretty prevalent everywhere, but it was kind of all known, like, when I was growing up. Like, you knew who the big drinkers of your parents' friends were, or your friends' parents, I should say. So, like, I wouldn't be allowed to go to such and such's house, because my mom knew that their parents drank and partied a lot, you know, so it wasn't a safe environment. I didn't want that to happen with our kids. Right. Um, because I knew that... I could control the situation. You were never so obliviously out of control um, where there would be harm. And I didn't want to be judged. Like, why are you staying with this loser Mm -hmm. if he's an alcoholic? Yeah, that's another good point. You know, like, so. I had a little bit of some upside and plus we were pretty tied together. Yeah. Financially and legally. More than just marriage, but through the business and everything. So you had... You had good reasons for staying with me, mm-hmm. and, and being judged like that would be more than you needed to have to go through, given everything you were already going through. Right, and I think that there would be some people that would have left earlier had 
Sure. The situation got it's so bad because they decision. because and because they didn't um, they didn't grow up with it being sort of normalized mm-hmm. the way I felt like it was in my upbringing. So this topic of who owns the story, do you do you even own your own story if you're the loved one of an alcoholic? It's it's just messy and it's confusing. And so, but this is something. This is a question we get a lot. This is a topic that we talk about a fair bit with people that were you know, working with and getting to know. And so I, I want to just offer some, some advice. One of the things, and this is advice that I offer both, you know, on the side of the loved one and also on the side of the alcoholic themselves. Most people aren't going to send this blast email. I'm not, you know, I'm here to tell you that is stressful and difficult and I don't necessarily recommend it. So that's not what this is about, telling everyone, oh, you got to tell everyone you've ever met. That's that's not the guidance. Right. The, the guidance is to slowly widen your inner circle. You've got, you know, in our case, it was basically our parents and our siblings were the only people that knew what was going on. And then, so broaden that. Maybe there's, maybe the cousins get to know. Maybe the aunts and uncles get to know. Maybe there is a friend or two that you really confide in. Maybe there's a coworker that you're really close with and just kind of tiptoe into it, slowly widening the inner circle. Because here's the thing, when you start to share your truth, which is a very vulnerable thing and you get rewarded for that vulnerability, you want to do it again and it makes it less scary. So do it slowly, widen that inner circle piece by piece. So you might think, gosh, Nobody knows about this. I don't have any support. My story isn't even my own. This is a terrible situation. Just tell one person and see how that goes. And if it goes well, tell a second person. You don't have to like, you know, it doesn't have to be a conquering of the world all at once. It can be a slowly letting the the string out, basically. That, I mean, that's, we've seen that be successful over and over again. And we have people in our echoes of recovery group who have shared stories where the you know one of the descriptions that we heard just recently is felt like a hundred pounds being lifted off my shoulders just by telling a person or two and and having not just that support but the relief of not keeping it all bottled in and so even if you are in that gray area of who owns the story it's not my story to tell find find a safe place and tell the story. And that's, you know, one of the biggest benefits of the Echoes of Recovery group is having a bunch of people from all across the world that are in the same situation, but they're not in the same zip code. So they're sharing these experiences, but there's no fear about bumping into each other at the grocery store or, you know, my spouse's um, employer finding out because I told people within the Echoes group that's just not a risk that you're taking. So you're getting the benefit of being honest and sharing your truth, but without the risk of what are the repercussions going to be? Because there, there really kind of aren't any. We're, we do uh, work really hard on keeping private things private within the Echoes of Recovery group. You know, one, I think, parting thing that we want to leave listeners with on this topic is this comes from a psychologist at one of the high schools where I work, his big mantra is mental health is health. 
So let's stop separating and saying you've got your physical health over here. We've got a you know well-designed, long, long-standing system for how you deal with physical health. If you've got an ailment, you go to your doctor. There's all you know this whole system of medical professionals ready and waiting to help you. And then mental health is this different thing. And until recently, you didn't talk about that. But now you can talk about it a little. But good luck getting help because the mental health professionals are overwhelmed. So that's this thing that lives over here. Physical health lives over there. This gentleman, this psychologist, says mental health is health. It's all the same thing. And I think you know, evidence to support that is what we talked about a few minutes ago with the topic of the body keeps the score. Um, the mental health has a huge impact on our physical health. And so it shouldn't be downgraded. It shouldn't be separated. They're all the same thing. So if you're thinking, oh, this was a lovely little podcast I just listened to about getting relief by sharing your truth, but whatever, I can take that or leave it. It's not all that important. It is. It's important. These things are all intertwined and work together. Agree? Yeah. Yeah. So mental health is health. And you know, I heard on the radio, this is 20-some years ago when Ellen DeGeneres had her sitcom episode where she came out as being gay. It, but I just turned on the radio this week, her talking, I don't know, it was on the, that comedy, um, comedy radio station we have. There was nothing comical about it. I guess they had her you know, speaking just because she is a comedian, although she wasn't telling jokes. But she was talking about that you know, moment 22 years ago now when she came out on live or yeah, live broadcast television about being gay. And she talked about the, the relief that she felt after. And her little quote that stuck with me since a few days ago when I heard it was, the truth always wins. Mm-hmm. It's coming out one way or the other. I, I remember that. And I remember watching like some little tidbits about, you know, the episode. Yeah. She only meant to whisper it, but whispered it into a microphone. Right. That was the com- comical <laughs> the PA, part of it. Yes. On the PA on her TV show. But I really like that. The truth always wins. You can push it down for as long as you want to your own detriment, but it's coming out eventually. Mm. What goes up must come down, but what goes down must also come up. And the truth is always going to win. So... Just choose your timing because eventually the truth wins out. Should we leave it at that? Yeah, I don't want to listen to another cliche. <laughs> Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, We're ready for you at ShoutSobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to SoberEvolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.